Welcome to Troll Black TV's weekly podcast where we feature the world's most extreme athletes. This week, we're featuring Colin O'Brady, who just conquered the Explorer's Grand Slam, climbing the tallest summits in seven continents in an earth-shattering world record time of 139 days. It's my pleasure and honor to introduce Colin O'Brady. Colin, welcome to our show. First of all, major kudos, man. You're mind-blowing Grand Slam. That's just a, an amazing feat. All I appreciate it, man. Around. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I bet you've been asked a thousand times, but, uh, you know, like, what, why did you do it? But I'm more interested in uh, how you came to the decision to do it. Yeah, you know, um, I think really the decision to do it really spawned, you know, from my professional triathlon career. So the last six or seven years before this project, I'd raced triathlon professionally, um, achieved a lot of my goals in that uh, space, uh, you know, represented the U.S. international competition in 25 countries, six different continents, um, and kind of got to a place where wanted to do something that still really pushed my limits and exceeded anything I'd ever done before, but also something that could have a, a bit of a larger platform to it. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we did this project, uh, not only to go after and set the world record, but to do something that exposed, uh, predominantly kids to the idea of exploration and moving their bodies and living active, healthy lives, not necessarily climbing all of the world's mountains, but just getting them a chance to, see a, a big goal in action and taking place and to hopefully inspire them to take those in goals, even if it's just in their own backyard. So, you know, when I, when I think about this, you know, the, the logistics of getting the permits and you, know, you got to pick all the different mountains, was it, was it a challenge also to figure out which order you should do things? Like which mountain to do yeah, which first? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. You know, um, you know, to set the record, uh, there's a, kind of a specific order that makes the most sense just in terms of there's a couple that have pretty fixed weather windows. So um, really starting in Antarctica makes the most sense in January, which is, you know, the middle of the Antarctic summer. Um, so that, that makes the most sense. So starting with the South Pole and uh, Mount Vincent. Um, and then on the back end of the project, uh, you know, Everest and Denali have pretty specific windows of where you want to be there and kind of have those back to back on the end. And then some of the others, you can kind of move around a little bit on on, on the middle. So actually, mid-project, we actually adjusted that even. So um, Kilimanjaro can be climbed sort of year-round. Um, and I originally had to plan to climb that in the middle of March after climbing Karsten's Pyramid and uh, Mount Elbrus. But I got finished with Aconcagua about a week or so earlier than I had anticipated. And we decided, oh, what? let's slot that one in there right now. So again, with the logistics, it was like, Oh, I thought we were going to be flying to Australia from here, but Jenna actually can from Argentina. Can you get me over to Africa and <laughs> up Kilimanjaro in the next couple of days? And then we'll go, you know, so, um, yeah, well, there's a couple you had could move around, but then again, there's the, the fixed points that you really couldn't adjust too much around with the poles and Mount Everest being pretty fixed in the, in the timeline. Wow. Wow. You know, the first time I heard about the seven summits and before you can get to the Grand Slam, um, I knew uh, Dick Bass. I don't know if you know who Dick Bass is. Yeah, he of course. The of course. former the owner of uh, the original guy that uh, first did it. What, he was one of the first, wasn't he? I think he may have been the, abs- the actual first, yeah. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, I remember when he was working. Um, 1985 or so. Yeah, but it was not like back-to-back-to-back to back to back like, your, like what you did um, in no. that case. 
that was kind of spaced out, do one and then come back and recoup and then go do another one. Um, you know, when I think about, you know, getting back to the logistics of that, I mean, you were in the North Pole, right? And then you went straight to Everest? Yep, exactly. Exactly. So you went from a yeah. sea level <laughs> to the highest mountain in the world. Was it hard yes. to acclimate um, for that? For sure. You know, that's the crux of the project. Uh, just just touching on Dick Bass first, which is, you know, 35 years ago, or whatever it was when he first did it, it's, you know, there's so much less, you know, there's not the internet, there's not satellite maps, there's not that sort of stuff. So um, in some regards, you know, I have such a tremendous amount of uh, respect for someone to have done that adventure, but also with so little uh, information out there, you know, and the, the day and age we live in, the, that information is so much more accessible, which allows for you to, you know, do something like I did, which is, you know, a bit quicker. Um, but still, it's amazing to have just done it and be the first one to pioneer that. It's incredible in my mind. But in terms of North Pole to Everest, yeah, that to me really was the crux of the project. Um, you know, the North Pole weather window directly conflicts when, with the first month that people usually spend on Everest. And then I got delayed an extra eight days. So when I arrived to Everest Base Camp on April 27th, I was actually the very last climber in the entire climbing season to arrive to Everest nearly a month behind, you know, many people who got there in early April. Um, and I was coming directly from sea level. So that presented a huge challenge because, of course, the summit day itself, you can't push it. It's not like you can make, oh, great, I'll summit a month later than everyone else. No, the monsoon comes and the season's over. Um, so I actually, arriving to Everest Base Camp on April 27th, summited Everest on May 19th, but just about three, just over three weeks later. Um, and to get my body acclimatized that quickly was uh, certainly really challenging and something up until I did some of the mountain that I was worried about, like, oh, am I going to be able to handle this? Is this pushing it too fast? Because that's definitely um, certainly on the faster end of the acclimatization spectrum. What did you do specifically to uh, acclimatize yourself? You know, um, I'm actually a big believer that you can't force acclimatization. You know, I don't think you can just push it. Um, I didn't use any um, supplementary stuff. I didn't use Diamox or anything like that during any of this project. So um, completely natural. Um, you know, I think fortunately my body uh, acclimatizes maybe a little faster than uh, normal. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, you still got to take it slow. You know, the first one I... Um, got into the Kumbu Valley, went to 14,000 feet, um, you know, the Everest base camps at 17,000 feet, you know, I was already getting headaches. Um, and so I had to take the say like, okay, I'm not even going to hike to base camp today. I got to wait till this headache goes away. Fortunately, that was the worst of it for me. Um, but it's, uh, it's super tough, um, to get your body going that quickly. And it definitely plays on the back of your mind because you hear these stories of people going up, um, you know, young, fit, ready, but, um, you know, you know, uh, cerebral edema or pulmonary edema just hits pretty quickly and that's a bad, bad situation. So definitely was, uh, troubling, but, uh, it worked out. Yeah. Was that, uh, was there any scary moments of when you were going up? Um, I think the scariest moment for me on Everest was I, um, actually had to make two separate summit attempts. So my first summit attempt um, it was just, I was climbing with just myself and one Sherpa, uh, Pasang Bodhi, and we decided, it looked like there was a little weather window opening up, um, and it looked like if we made that weather window, we were going to beat sort of the larger crowds, and I was always worried about getting stuck in a big traffic jam, 
um, up there on the ropes. And so we decided to go directly from camp two to camp four in a single day. Uh, you know, normally you sleep the night at camp three on your way up to the summit. Um, and it was a beautiful day going up the low T phase, calm, sunny. Uh, and then we went up over the Geneva spur, which is sort of the last mountain feature before arriving to the South call on camp four at 26,000 feet. And all of a sudden just getting hammered by wind. Um, and what we didn't realize was the weather window had closed. Um, it took us over two hours just to set up our tent. Um, by the time we actually got in our tent, we realized there was no way we were going to be attempting the summit that night as we had planned. And we just had to just hunker down, um, spend the night at camp four, which is, you know, not usually a great situation and then retreat in the morning. And so that was, you know, scary for me just because it was an, an intense moment, but even more so disappointing. I thought, you know, hey, there's no, you know, usually people don't go to camp four, uh, more than once. You know, we had basically mm-hmm. had to go back all the way down to camp two and didn't know if I would have the energy or oxygen left or that to be able to make a second summit attempt. Fortunately, I did a few days later get up there. Um, but it did end up having all those crowds there that I was worried about because because of that weather window had closed, all those teams got backed up, including myself and then a whole set of other teams went. So on the day I did summit was the, most crowded summit day that the Nepalese side of Everest has seen in, you know, over three years and uh, definitely not um, ideal climbing conditions when there's a lot of people moving up on no, a big mountain. Not at all, there's, man. there's one rope and that. So that was uh, frightful for me just standing out, standing How outside. How many people you think? Um, you know, I don't know the exact number, but I think it was like above 150 or so on that day. If you include, um, shit, as well. People. So yeah. Something That's like a lot that. Of the weirdest. I mean, you're gonna, yeah, right. Like, I mean, it's funny because um, you're in this remote part of the world. You don't expect to see, you know, that many people. But I mean, that's that's Everest, and that's the way Everest. What Everest has become, you know, for me growing up climbing mountains in the Pacific Northwest, and which is where I've, you know, established my love of mountain climbing as a kid. You know, getting out in the wilderness and climbing mountains meant, you know, being out there with me and a climbing partner, and me and my dad, or me and a buddy, or something like that, and not seeing many other people. So. Um, you know, the Himalayas and particularly Everest has uh, a different feel to it with just how much infrastructure and people are there. And of course, the tallest mountain in the world, a lot of people want to climb it, um, but it's definitely a, a different <laughs> environment than I would typically be used to in a climbing environment. No kidding, man. So you had a mountaineering experience? Yeah, a bit, you know, far from any sort of professional mountaineer or, you know, not capable of climbing the Sears Tower like yourself, you know, which is uh, damn impressive, I must say. Um, <laughs> my mom's from Chicago, so I've stood up the top a few times in my life. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty high, man. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I grew up with parents who love the outdoors, um, spent a lot of time just hiking, backpacking, climbing, you know, small mountains as a kid. And as I turned, you know, teenager, climbing a little bit bigger and a little bit more, um, you know, and I took a semester off, uh, from college and did a Knowles course, a 90 day expedition down in Patagonia, Chile, sea kayaking and mountaineering and kind of learning some more skills. So it's been something I've done, you know, throughout my life as a hobby and something I've, you know, really enjoyed. But this, uh, this project was definitely the the largest mountaineering undertaking that I've that I've taken in my life, that's for sure. How do you uh, train yourself mentally? Um, well, I have a, a daily meditation practice that's a, 
a big uh, help for me. I um, in in 2011, I was exposed to the Vipassana meditation. A friend of mine just said, "Hey, you should go try this thing. It's a 10-day silent meditation retreat. No reading, no writing, no eye contact, nothing." And I suppose being the um, kind of all or nothing type of personality I was, I'd never meditate, meditated, you know, a minute in my life before that. But I was like, yeah, that sounds great. That'd be a great way to, you know, and so, you know, of course, I just show up to uh, <laughs> this meditation retreat and don't talk and just meditate straight for 10 days. Um, and uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a great experience, certainly challenging, um, but taught me a lot. And I've gone back subsequently and done that same retreat a couple of times. Uh, this point, but also integrated that into sort of a daily practice of just, you know, I, I sort of originally went after it because, oh, this would be good for my racing. This would be good for me to have more mental control, but it's really just given me a general just calm and awareness and a way of just, you know, being in touch a little closer with my emotions, which I think when you're in the mountains is, is great. Of course, it's, it's important to be able to push on when times get tough. There's no doubt that that's helpful, but it's also, you know, you know, from being, uh, a great climber that you know in the mountains you're always assessing risk and making decisions and you're also making decisions in the middle of the night when it's dark and cold and you know you're mm-hmm. scared or whatnot so being able to have some mental clarity in those uh you know heightened situations i think it is huge for sure really important yeah i was gonna ask you about that is there any particular technique you use to combat fear yeah, um, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm not superhuman. I, I'm, I'm scared just like everyone else, you know, at times. And in fact, I think, um, if you don't have at least a, a healthy level of fear, um, you know, can, can be useful, but an unhealthy amount or being feared of things that you don't need to be scared of is also can be really counterproductive. So I think the biggest thing for me is, knowing my body, knowing, knowing my skill level, knowing, you know, what I can control and I can't control. I know you've had, uh, Alex Honnold on the show before and, you know, the mm-hmm. stuff that he does without ropes is, you know, absolutely incredible. But I think that probably boils down to his confidence and knowledge and understanding of what he is capable of. Um, and that of course is climbing at a far higher level than anything that I could ever do without a rope or with a rope for that matter. Um, you know, on sort of the technical big walls that he can go on. Um, but even for myself, it's the same. It's a, it's a different calculation and it's a different level of skill perhaps, but it's no different. You know, it's understanding your body, understanding your limits, um, and being able to push through those. So, um, for me, even though again, you know, whether it's triathlon racing or whether it's mountaineering, um, I've spent decades of my life diving into my physical and emotional, you know, tolerance levels. Um, and so that I think helps me manage fear and manage risk, um, no matter what situation I encounter by really having a great, um, being really greatly in tune with my, you know, ability. And so was there any moment that you find yourself absolutely terrified, like you thought you were going to die? Um, there, there's, there's a couple, um, you know, when I was, uh, you know, speaking of climbing without a rope, I, uh, kind of crazy set of circumstances, climbing Mount Elbrus, um, person I was climbing with turned around without telling me with, while carrying my climbing rope. Um, and I sort of had to make the call of going across this glacier unroped or turning around, but there was a big storm coming in. I was going to be delayed for a long time. And, uh, the climbing wasn't particularly technical, but it was steep and icy enough that you'd have liked to be roped, not to mention I was crossing a glacier. 
that I didn't know very well. Um, and sure enough, fell waist deep into a, a crevasse there, had to pull myself out and it was just kind of one of those moments of like, what am I doing out here? There's no rope. I should be roped, you know, just kind of like managing that. I decided to soldier on and, you know, did make it to up and down safely, but that was a moment where it was just kind of pushing my personal boundaries for sure. Um, and then, uh, another moment that comes to mind was, you know, being on Mount Everest, I, uh, I, the, the day that we went, were going for the summit, uh, the weather was not looking great. It was going to be pretty windy and cold. And I had mentioned getting stuck behind to a lot of people. So the first half of that climb, actually, um, I decided to unrope and climb, uh, unroped up to the balcony, which, you know, felt well within my own personal limits and allowed me to pass about a hundred other people that were on the ropes that day. That was totally fine, but then got to a section where it was just unsafe to be unroped anymore, so clipped into the rope, but I still was behind several people moving really slowly, and uh, it was dark at this point, and I pulled out pulled out my uh pulled off my glove to make an adjustment and I looked down at my hand and my hand is completely black, just like black as black Holy can shit. be my right hand. And I'm freaking out. You know, your mind's I'm at twenty eight thousand feet, the middle of the night. I've never been up that high before. Um and you know your your mind's not completely right. So I kinda quickly, you know, shove my hand back in my glove and kinda just kinda sit with myself like, what should I do? This and <laughs> for better or worse I made the thought process in my mind. I said, Well shit, I'm gonna lose I'm going to lose my hand here, but I'm, if I lose my hand and don't get the summit of Everest, that's a double double lose, so I should keep going and uh, at least get the summit. But, man, it's going to be a horrible. I can't believe I'm living without a hand. What am I going to do? So I keep climbing for a couple hours. Um, the sun comes up, and, you know, I'm just kind of in this very negative headspace, as you would expect, you know, given what I think is going on. And I um pull my glove off again to just like look at my hand once the daylight's out and I look down and I start laughing and it's the uh hand warmer inside of my glove had burst and that's you know made of charcoal and copper filings I actually just <laughs> dyed my hand black <laughs> this whole time you thought you were gonna lose your hand <laughs> exactly but it was weird I was it's like your mind is playing tricks on me because I'm like my hand feels fine I never felt it getting cold and like I can still move it normal but I'm thinking man I guess maybe that's just the way it is up here. Like I've never been this high before. You know, you're just like, you're not quite perfectly cognitively there, obviously. And so, um, this whole time, I, Oh, it's over my hand, this. And then I realized it's, you know, my hand is completely fine. Um, uh, and so that was a, a rapid swing of negative to positive emotion for sure. Um, but a scary moment nonetheless, when I thought that, uh, I had frostbitten my hand really badly. Well, Wow, that's a good story. That's a great story. That's an incredible story. It. Yeah. So what's next? That, that seems to be the uh, the question of the hour. Uh, <laughs> I uh, you know I'm, I'm still just uh, still just catching my breath. I've been home uh, pretty much exactly two months now, um, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of fun and exciting opportunities. You know, media opportunities and whatnot over the last couple months. Uh, and then I just took uh, two weeks to, for the first time, to just really catch my breath. I went to Kauai, with my, where my dad lives, the last two weeks, and just uh, just relaxed for a second. So that was nice to be somewhere warm and at sea level for the first time in quite quite a while. Um, but the, you know, there's definitely going to be another project on the horizon. You know, there's some ideas batting around in my head and talking to a couple people, but uh, I'm not ready like, to uh, not ready to share that. Yet. that 
but then the other thing that's hugely important to me was, you know, I set myself two big goals this year, you know, one of which was to set this world record, um, which I accomplished, but the other was to, you know, continue to really um, be a strong, active voice uh, in the community for inspiring kids to live active, healthy lives, combat childhood obesity and whatnot. So there's a huge focus for me the remainder of this year and then the future on that. So, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in school, sharing this story, you know, doing what I can in the community to, uh, you know, have this narrative, be an inspirational piece uh, to help bring funds and awareness uh, to, to this cause. So that's a definitely hugely important next steps for me and will be, I think, a continuous thread throughout uh, whatever it is I do next on the expedition world. Words of wisdom, man. Well, lastly, what words, speaking of words of wisdom, what words of inspiration would you like to share with the black community? You know, for me, it's uh, the last thing I would say is uh, I, th- I think goal setting is a powerful thing. Um, but I think a lot of people uh, have dreams rather than goals. And that's not to belittle dreams, but I think the difference is uh, a goal is a dream that you actually actively pursue. And so, um, I, you know, over the course of this project, people have said to me, oh, I wish I could do that one day or, um, you know, whether it's just one of the mountains, not even all seven, whatnot. And what I say to that is you can, if you actually want to do it, you can, you know, I did not, I'm not some rich guy who just funded this project myself out of my, you know, fancy checkbook or trust fund or something, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I had a goal. I put the idea into action. I dreamed it up. I put the right people around me, the amount of people that naysayed me, the people that said, no, you can't do it. It's not possible. The weather's not going to work out. I mean, this endless, endless stream of people saying, you can't, you can't, you can't. Here's all the reasons you can't. And I kept, you know, saying, no, well, here's the reasons I believe that I can. And I finally found some wonderful supporters, some wonderful support sponsors to help this project um, and pursued forward. So what I would say to people is, um, if you have a goal, or if you have a dream, you know, act on it and not just the big goal, not just the, Hey, I want to get to the summit of Mount Everest, but all the nitty gritty too, you know, each day, um, to use a mountain metaphor, you know, one step at a time, you know, gets you to the mountaintop, which starts long before on any expedition, actually being on the expedition, but from the little packing your stuff and figuring out logistics and how do I, do I got to figure out a guy in Russia that can get me a visa, that can get me the permit, that can get me to this. So, you know, day by day, you can kind of chip away at one of these big goals. And, uh, you know, I challenge people out there to chase whatever it is, even if that's not in the mountains, but to uh, go after their dreams and goals. Nicely said. Well, Colin, I can't thank you enough, seriously, man. Uh, you are totally a, a major inspiration to not just me, but pretty much everyone I know who will be listening to this. Um, oh, I, I wish thank you, you all so much for best. having me. Yeah. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me on. Fantastic, man. And um, anytime that you got something coming up and you want some support, uh, reach out to us because we might be in a position by then to uh, actually do that. Will do. Will do. I will be in touch for sure. Thank you, my friend. You got it, Colin. Wow. If that doesn't inspire you to pursue your dreams, I'm not sure what will. As Colin said, goal setting is a powerful thing. Most people, whether they realize it or not, are focused on their dreams instead of their goals. The difference is, a goal is a dream that you're actively pursuing with a plan of action and steps you need to take along the way. Sometimes these steps may seem trivial, but as you'll find, they are the key to your success. 
So until next week, my friends, this is Dan Goodwin with Black TV, your entertainment source for extreme sports.